Welcome back to Clear the Air. Today's discussion is with Kobe Fuller, general partner at Upfront Ventures and chairman and co-founder at Valence. Kobe has built an expertise over time as an investor in SaaS businesses and marketing technologies and has a deep knowledge of emerging sectors including virtual reality and augmented reality. Some of his notable investments include Exact Target and Oculus, both of which were acquired for $2.5 billion by Salesforce and Facebook, respectively. In this chat, we talk with Kobe about his career journey as an investor, as well as a brief stint he had as a CMO at Revolve Clothing. Outside of his takes on where technology is going in the future, he also has some really interesting commentary about the evolving roles of CMOs at organizations. Lastly, we dive into his latest venture, Valence, which is a black professional networking platform and some of the great work that's being done there. It's an amazing place to help provide visibility to black talent and to also help develop emerging black leaders for the future. Hope you enjoy the show. Well, Kobe, uh, thanks for joining us at, uh, at Clear the Air, one of the big dogs in the investment community in uh, Southern California. You know, let's let's start off here. Um, you know, you have an interesting background, uh, you know, went to Harvard for undergrad. And I think if I have this correct, I, I heard a story that being uh, not, I don't want to say rejected, but I heard you share something in common with Michael Jordan in that you tried to play basketball and those dreams kind of were curtailed and that led you to track. Uh, yeah, curious if you can kind of dive into uh, into some of that as part of your background. <laughs> yeah, so first off, pleasure to be here having this conversation. And yeah, it was early on in my childhood, I was obsessed with basketball. It was my first passion. I was always on the courts playing nights and weekends. And my freshman year of high school, I was going out to try to make the team and I first started the week thinking I had good shot, especially when the coach made the statement that to make the team, you needed two out of three skills, the skills being heart, speed, and skill. So at the end of the week, we were brought in one by one into the room with the coach, and he was giving us the news if we made the team or not. And he was like, hey, Kobe, you know, I know I said you needed two out of three skills. You have the biggest heart. and..." You're by far the fastest player on the court, but you got no damn skills, so you can't make the team. So that was definitely uh, heart shattering for uh, a kid that was you know, loving basketball, but then realized that you know heart and speed is pretty good recipe for track. And I also I, I loved smoking fools on the on, on the streets <laughs> and out the track. So that went on to you know being you know really great. You know first freshman year in high school and went off to being state champ and um, one of the top runners in the nation, got recruited by a bunch of schools, ended up going to Harvard and you know ran all four years, capped my senior year, and then ultimately ran post-collegiate until I was 30. And then I ultimately had to give it up because I slightly tore the labor on my hip and it was, wasn't uh, wasn't sort of uh, in the cards to run long-term, which most people honestly shouldn't be sprinting long-term. It's very, very hard in <laughs> the body. And unfortunately, there's very little money in track, so wasn't really yep. able to pay the bills off of the sprint career. But it was a really, really good part of my life and helped really form who I am as an individual in terms of that athlete mindset. So anyway, yeah, so basketball was never on the cards. <laughs> no, that's uh, no, that's a great, great background and a, and a backdrop here. And, and yeah, I agree. Um, nobody should be sprinting until they're in their early to mid 30s. Uh, I, I played basketball for a minute until I was about 31. 
had some shoulder problems. And so now I'm into uh, endurance sports. But uh, yeah, I guess, you know, as you uh, finished up at, at Harvard, you know, what what got you into the investment space and technology also? Like what, just curious, like what, what, what got you interested in that field and um, led to your first, your, you know, your original career path right out of undergrad there? Yeah. So technology was also from a very early age. It was through video games where I developed a passion around computers and tech. My dad used to work for a digital equipment corporation, if anyone remembers that name, and came home with a computer one day. And I I didn't know what to do with the computer except like, wait a minute, I heard about these computer games. Why can't I try to, to play around on your computer with some computer games? And first he was just like, hey kid, get get off my 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 work machine. Like that's <laughs> that's my work. And eventually he let me tinker around with it. He had a modem 2400 baud modem dating myself there in terms of that technology that i used to go on um, bbs's and download games and eventually started you know getting five and a half five and a quarter three half inch sloppy discs that were you know find games either in the mail or at stores and then it was through trying to play these games on a computer that for some reason or another couldn't support it anymore where i was able to learn how to upgrade hardware and software systems to play the next advanced games. Think about also local networking where I was playing um, you know, network games with my friends across town. And that helped me honestly through that knowledge, be able to you know work part time in IT support in my local town hall to make a few bucks. Mm -hmm. But that's how I learned some of the underpinnings of just computer hardware and software. How I got exposed into the world of venture capital and startups was partially through athletics. So one of my buddies who was on the track team with me at Harvard was also a member of the Jamaican Junior National Soccer Team, had an idea around using the internet to connect soccer players with recruiters that we hmm. ultimately raised some money for and got to be one of the highest traffic um, sports sites online at the time. And it was through trying to raise uh, real venture capital where I got exposed to the whole notion of being able to get equity financing to you know build a business and saw all these people that came by the office and we were on our best behavior really trying to impress them to raise that money where I was like whoa what is that like I kind of I kind of want to do that career versus um, scrapping and um, you know eating ramen and and, and barely kind of surviving <laughs> which ultimately uh, the business uh, went to zero like many other things did during the dot-com bust but that's where I first got exposed to it and I was obsessed with trying to find a way to make it into the industry. I sent physical letters to every Boston-based VC at the time and was working to find a way to just get any entry-level job. No one really responded back, but it was then after a year of investment banking where I had the opportunity to meet with a firm in New York called Insight Venture Partners, where one of my good friends, who also was on the track team with me, went straight to um, out of school, and I was able to meet with his boss, hear the story of Insight, pitched myself and was ultimately given the chance to, you know, find my way into uh, a junior level seat at Insight. So that was kind of my my journey into, you know, finding my way into tech uh, venture capital. No, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, combination of uh, leveraging your network, connecting your passions as a as a kid growing up to the field, and then and then the hustling aspect is uh, is something that I really really appreciate. I. It's funny. I'm looking at your profile now. I thought that I had a lot of different experiences, and I, um, you know, it's funny because when 
when we were kind of coming up, a lot of people just had the career paths, just work at a company for 20 years, you know, have your progressions. And, and me, I've, I've always kind of had the mindset, you know, look for a culture, look for a good spot, but always look, always be on the lookout for opportunity. And it seems like, um, you know, you kind of, kind of capitalized that when you made that, that first move there. Um, I think, you know, one, you know, one thing we talked about previously that I wanted you to touch on that's kind of relevant to RPA and our space marketing and advertising. Uh, yeah, the exact target investment um, that you were a part of, um, I want to say, was this like 2012, 2013 range or so? Or no, I'm sorry, this was uh, earlier in the 2000s, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was your early author. Yeah, I was going to say, um, would love to get your take on because you know I've I was in that space for 10, 12 years. There's tons of players. It's very fragmented. Like, like what was the you know you don't have to give us all the secret sauce, but what was kind of the the thought process of you know honing in on that provider versus others? And yeah, just curious what what kind of went involved in that. Yeah. So again, this is dating myself a little bit. So that was around the 2003 timeframe when. I probably had an initial conversation with Scott Dorsey, the founder, CEO of Exact Target, and it was under the thesis around software was moving uh, off of being on-prem and to being hosted. Um, so we were at that time didn't call it SaaS, called it ASP, and looking at different applications that in a hosted environment would be logical for companies to use at scale and happened to zero in on the the marketing org and how there's being now lots more ways in which you could communicate with users and customers outside of traditional you know paid media billboard advertising print and the like and email marketing being a, a logical venue to actually do that so it was one where i got in touch with exact target but also a laundry list of all the other players at the time. So Constant Contact was still around at the time, Responsis, uh, Blue Hornet, Cheetah Mail. I mean, there was, I basically had a spreadsheet of all these companies that I reached out to to get a sense of what were the more interesting ones. And Exact Target really jumped out as the more exciting one. Uh, and that was for a number of different reasons. First and foremost, the founder. So Scott Dorsey mm -hmm. is one of the most exceptional human beings just generally, but also founders that I've ever had the pleasure to actually work with really truly embodies uh, one, a focus on values and how you as organizations to prioritize values as you're thinking about not only hiring employees and building your team, but also as you think about your culture and your culture and how it extends to not only your customers, but your partners. And he really just like eat, slept, breathe that and you saw that as you were talking to the rest of the senior leadership team. So to have the ability to back someone like that was huge. I think secondly, is the vision. He saw Exact Target as being a vehicle to uh, almost kind of create like the central operating system for the, the marketing organization and how long-term it could not only be just email, but other applications as well. He went quickly into um, social and then other uh, categories from there. And then uh, the overall approach in which he thought about going after customers and creating a differentiated uh, offering, uh, even amidst sort of a cluttered universe of companies. So at the time, Can't Spam just came out, which prevented people in their eyes uh, from sending email mm -hmm. at scale without having sort of compliance towards how you're sending emails. 
So as I was honestly pitching exact target, I got a lot of pushback internally around why would we ever invest in an email blaster? Like this is like the worst thing to do at this time. But it was one where as a you know junior analyst, like barely in the you know firm, I followed my nose, my gut, and pushed incredibly hard to put together the the narrative on paper and the thesis of the guards to why this would exist uh, in long term. And so ultimately we you know, we're able to uh, get that investment done and it went on to do quite well, ultimately being acquired by Salesforce for a few billion dollars. And now is the core of um, Salesforce Marketing Cloud, which yep. I think is in terms of um, total revenue. Um, I don't know if it's on my head, but it's doing billions and billions in annual revenue. Uh, so it's, again, those one where it worked out a little lucky, uh, but also uh, a lot of just you know, taking a prepared mind approach towards going after um, companies that I was excited to back. Yeah, a couple of things there. I think to your point about the pushback that you got, I believe back then all those players were known as email service providers. And yeah, there was a stigma that they were uh, spam machines or mass blast machines. And and now we got these sexier names, marketing automation or marketing clouds. They're just, you know, they just sound <laughs> a little more exotic. I thought it was interesting, though, when you talked about um, some of the key differentiators. You mentioned the founder, the culture, and then a lot of emphasis on the product. I thought it was just interesting that from the outside, when you think about investments, you think about trajectories in terms of revenue, maybe you know size of customers, diversity of customers. Like I thought that was just interesting that you kind of emphasize those other components versus the the latter. So yeah, yeah. I mean, they definitely had all that too, but. The, if you don't have true uh, leadership and true differentiated product and actually stand for something, I feel like the revenue and that growth, it's just not sustainable long-term. It just catches up with you one way or the other. Um, so they had all that. That was kind of mm-hmm. a prerequisite to be able to write the check. But but yeah, those are the things that get me most excited. Let's fast forward a little bit to your time at Revolve. And I think, do I have this right? Was that was that your only role as kind of an operator working for a brand in a yep. leadership position? Um, yeah, uh, you know, just really because a lot of people that I talk to and we've we've profiled some here, um, they've to obtain a chief marketing officer position. They've kind of been on that trajectory from day one. And yeah, curious how you were able to kind of get into that role. I'm assuming you had some relationship with them prior and. Uh, yeah, would love to get your take about your experience as an operator, you know, positive and negative. So the way that worked out is that I tried to invest in Revolve maybe a year after the the Mikes started the business and pitched them hard, just constant pursuit. They wouldn't take our money. So mm-hmm. it was through me not being good enough at my job where ultimately like I still became friends with the founders. And it was the course of just several years. Anytime I'd go to LA for either business or pleasure, we would hang out. And probably at some point later than night, I'd go on some rant and I'd be like, yeah, you guys suck at marketing. Your website looks like trash. Your emails are horrible. Like, like, and people remember Revolve, they had this like, horrible, like dark website that wasn't mm-hmm. organized in any rhyme or reason. And I was just like, have you heard about personalization? Have you heard about all these new ways in which people are actually treating their users and their customers? And then after, I don't know, enough of me pestering them, they were just like, hey, why don't you move to LA, be the CMO if you think, you know, this is something that you can really take on. So 
I drag my wife kicking and screaming, who um, all enough also works in women fa women's fashion, and mm -hmm. kind of um, found myself as you know CMO of this you know emerging uh, fashion retailer with really no practical marketing experience. I had a theoretical perspective on how marketers should be doing their jobs, and a lot of that was through me investing in a lot of these um, cutting edge marketing tools and also diligencing these cutting edge marketing tools. So I, I could I could see the pieces of around how I could take data and create systems to um, drive scale and in a hyper efficient manner. And then I I guess naturally had this qualitative lens on how to build brand and also how to think about women's fashion, probably through me just absorbing it naturally through mm. uh, my wife being um, just living it day in, day out. But yeah, I mean, the first day was yeah total just like rude awakening in terms of like, whoa, what did I do in my life? I went from being like a Boston-based VC mm -hmm. to working in uh, LA fashion, Revolves based in Cerritos, which is like the middle yep. of nowhere. And so having... Uh, that be my day to day driving down from Cerritos from downtown LA and then just like selling women's clothes. It's funny too, because at the time I thought a, a lot of the, um, it was most equally split men's women's like, no, it was predominantly women's a little bit men. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, like I'm barely even taking any of my time <laughs> focusing on the men's segment. But um, I just went all in, in terms of better understanding how to um, take that, theoretical knowledge and put it into practice. And a uh, a lot of it was me really, really, really taking the time to understand the brand and the assortment. For, in, in my opinion, I almost had to understand um, the, the brand assortment and the SKUs better than any of the buyers. So mm -hmm. I went like, I went in so deep where I could, I could be walking down the street and be able to recognize not only like the the brand shoe and model shoe that potentially a woman was wearing, but I'd probably know what season it was from. I probably would know if it sold through well or not, and if they bought it on like discount or full price. And it was just all this knowledge that allowed me to be incredibly dangerous with regards to um, knowing how to leverage um, the data on top of all that to drive um, mm -hmm. to drive outcomes. So we're able to in my time there, um, you know, get that thing onto hyper growth rate. I think when I left, it was. You know, close to a couple hundred million um, revenue run rate, and my joint was probably on like twenty or thirty, and yeah. um, started going crazy on things with regards to like Instagram influencers, and we were <laughs> early days doing that before anyone else. And I threw their first like rager party in Coachella on two weeks' notice, and it was stuff where honestly, after a couple of years, it was like I'm a nerd, like a nerd athlete. And I was yeah. like, this is fun, but like I don't want to spend my entire life doing this, and um, so I left after a couple of years, but. The team is, you know, they're still really good friends. And it's amazing to see they've gone on to be a multi-billion dollar public company and um, just really innovating in a massive manner uh, in the category. So, yeah, it was a really good, fun pit stop that really helped uh, up-level my game with regards to how I am a, a venture capitalist right now where I can yeah. really roll my sleeves and help out my portfolio companies operationally with regards to marketing and branding and the like. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I had... Yeah, two follow-up questions there. Because you did have that experience as an operator, you know, one of the things I would imagine is you learned a lot about how team structures and and teams kind of could gel and produce, you know, become high-performing teams, so to speak. Yeah. And I'd say just being in the trenches, the knowing how it is to actually manage teams, knowing the emotional aspect that naturally comes into play with regards to trying to achieve performance also 
navigating issues with team members that may have nothing to do with the day-to-day job, but it has to do with the guards and maybe their mindset around how they're focused on doing the job generally and how you work to get 110% out of them when maybe they naturally would only put in like 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of those abilities around being a true leader and then creating uh, a true team dynamic where I was one, like super transparent with my org they put together the guards, like, what are our goals? What am I accountable to as a like, as a CMO in terms of goals that I'm personally taking on? What are all the, C- the leaders on my team? What are they accountable to? And what are their goals in a very uh, clear and measurable manner? Um, and how can we all uh, help one another um, achieve those like team um, level goals? And, and, and realize that if we don't, we lose together or we win together. And mm-hmm. that level of transparency and way and also I expose the quant folks on my teams to the more creative folks on the team so they actually could learn one another and realize we're not operating in a silo it all kind of uh intertwines yeah. one another um created a nice like core like just like hyper-powered group that was able to uh achieve pretty significant results in a short period of time so you know having that experience firsthand at least allowed me to see okay when someone is really truly in the weeds and helping um, create a true sense of uh, team structure, organization, and systems that help organize themselves. And when someone honestly is not doing the work to really uh, hold folks accountable and and bring people together in a, a true organized function. So it was a lot more uh, hands-on um, team building than being a VC, that's for sure. And I only got a flavor of it because I was only doing it for two years. But having a flavor is better than having, you know, not even ever yeah, no experience, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and you just and and you know, you just touched on one other piece. This is oversimplifying it, but you know, within a marketing or advertising org, you have more quant-based skill sets versus creative. Um, you know, I'm curious after your experience with the evolving roles and required skill sets of CMOS. Are you, you know? A lot of the publications I read and and in my network, it seems like there's a little bit of a shift more towards the quant data technology versus the creative branding type experience. Because I feel like, you know, when both of us first got into the workforce, a lot of it, the focus was on the creative and branding brand management. And I'm curious your perspective of what you've seen. Is it still kind of that like happy marriage between the two or is it maybe shifting towards one end or the other? Yeah, I mean, it has to be a happy marriage because you can have all the data science, like AI optimized mumbo jumbo managing all your channels. But if you're throwing garbage in, in terms of whatever the message is, the creative is, Mm -hmm. what your brand stands for, then you're you're not going to see any significant performance in terms of uh, driving conversions and retentions ultimately with customers. And for me, it's all about uh, knowing truly who you are as a brand, how you talk about your products, how do you create that emotional connection uh, with uh, that customer to the point where not only are they going to buy once, but they'll buy multiple times. And ideally, they're going to start referring you to their friends. And to do that, you need to understand how to drive emotion and how you drive emotion is through brand and through creative and also through community and how um, the, the quantitative aspect of uh, marketing comes into play is it takes all of the creative tools and weapons you have at your disposal and allows you to scale them in a way that you could never do before. But if you you don't have that um, creative brand under, underpinning, then it, it, it's just garbage. I mean, you may, maybe yeah. you'll growth hack your way into 
a, a world where you drive some top line revenue and performance, but you're not going to create any like category defining business that people emotionally are just in love with and that they will like stand uh, by your side and defend your brand for you if there's detractors or folks that uh, for some reason are just against your brand. Like you're trying to create, in my sense, in my, my opinion, uh, a community uh, of folks that um, truly know why they are a part of your community. And part of that is through sort of that brand and that creative and the emotional connection. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, it's funny. We uh, we talked a little bit about that that last piece there, how to create an emotional connection with your customers. And, and part of that is understanding data about them to inform that. But there needs to be, yeah, I mean, we, we were actually just talking about this a couple episodes ago. There needs to be that balance and an understanding of how to put it to life, so to speak, with message, messaging, imagery, videos, and whatnot. So yeah. fast forward a little bit, another one of your interesting investments, uh, Oculus. Um, I'll, I'll admit, I don't know a ton about VR. I mean, I know about it conceptually. You know, the metaverse is coming and whatnot. But, you know, it looks like here that you got involved with them in 2013. So before, you know, the VR really was taking off. But, um, yeah, I was curious if you could touch on that and the, the thought behind, you know, that and seeing that trend and, and why you made that investment too. Yeah. So that's another example of me making dumb decisions a couple times. So, um, so, so Brendan Arib, who is the founder CEO of Oculus, he ultimately, you know, was first off my friend and how I got to know Brandon is I almost invested in his first company Scaleform, which is a kind of 2D, 2D middleware SDK for uh, gaming tools, gaming platforms. Uh, and we, we ultimately didn't invest in his company. And that was probably a great thing because if we invested in his company, he probably would have been in it longer and never went on to do Oculus. So mm -hmm. six months after we, we, we passed on that deal, he actually sold the company to Autodesk for a, a good sum of money, and he bootstrapped that, so he he did pretty well. So he moved to LA at the same time I moved to LA to uh, join a company called Gaikai, which is a cloud streaming gaming platform, and that's when I joined for Revolve. We still stayed you know pretty close contact, and then a year into probably my time at in LA at Revolve, he like sends me this text message. One morning, like so clear in my head, he was like, I'm doing this like VR thing. Stay close. I need to assemble like the best team possible. And I was like, VR, like that's that thing. I remember when I was a kid that was like, <laughs> this promise of like this cool, amazing sort of like immersive like gaming environment. Yeah. Like, I, never like, I knew really about 3D. Like there, 3D was kind of a thing. There was Captain EO, you know, at, at Disneyland, the Michael Jackson thing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. VR was, wasn't really. Major. It was all crap. Nintendo had this crappy <laughs> VR headset. I forget what it was called. It was like monochrome, just like red and black. And it was just, it was horrible. Everything that was VR was like horrible. So then I was like, man, Brendan lost his mind. What is he talking about? But um, I stayed close, and then he had this initial prototype that he he created, and I tried it, and I was like, oh, my God, this was, like, amazing. So I was very close to joining on the ground floor as one of the core, like, team members at Oculus. And it was around the time, actually, when they were doing their Series A round led by Spark, and then they were adding on John Carmack to the team as CTO, and I was potentially coming on as CMO. But ultimately, Excel Partners found me and convinced me to go back to the world of venture capital. And I was just like, all right, like this highly speculative, like hardware yeah. or Excel, which are your know, first investors in 
you know, companies like Facebook, Dropbox, Slack, CrowdStrike now. And then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go to Excel and then I'll, I'll drop a few pennies in Oculus. And I mean, that really worked out really well. But what I should have done is join Oculus because a year later from that time when I could have joined, it got acquired by Facebook for a couple of billion dollars. So at that point, I could have gone back to, you know, I probably could have gone to venture and been totally fine. But I'm not, I'm not smart at everything. But that was kind of how I got uh, first involved with Oculus and, and was able to invest in Oculus. And it was from putting that headset on for the first time where, I mean, I was just changed. Like, oh my God, I was like, this is the future. This is where everything's going. Being able to have the sense of presence with someone else in this immersive environment with a very simple headset on was just, it, it's it's not a matter of if, but it's when everyone has one of these uh, on their head. And yeah, it's a very, very exciting time. And you're seeing, fast forward to today, a lot of conversation about the, the metaverse, the metaverse. I mean, we were talking about like the metaverse for for years. Now I feel like it's an overhyped uh, word, but it will be without a doubt a part of everyone's life in the next, they call it three to five years. Uh, and, and very, very excited where it's going. Do you think, I mean, I, I don't I don't want to get too uh, philosophical here, but do, do you think if, if that does happen, it's going to, it's going to take away from, you know, the everyday in-person conversations and is going to maybe cloud the development of some people because they're not having the face-to-face -face interactions and they're living in the metaverse. I don't want to say fantasy world, but, you know, this alternative universe that's maybe not reality. I don't know. Is are there Do, do you see those concerns out there or is is it a is it a maybe a scenario where both can kind of complement each other? You know. Yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm more concerned of COVID doing that because we're kind of already like living in a metaverse. I mean, if you think about the amount of time people live on Zoom calls, having conversations with one another versus in person, like yep. I mean, honestly, Microsoft Teams or, or or Zoom's probably more the metaverse than anything else at this point right now. If you really truly think about it, and but on top of that, if you think also the way how multiplayer gaming's evolved and the amount of people are spend time in, in Roblox or Fortnite or others, like that's just the iteration of the metaverse. So people are are already spending their lives in these uh, immersive digital environments versus time with others in person. But like what's exciting is that people are able to form different types of bonds and connections over activities that aren't really possible in the real world. But then if you layer on the the idea of there being sort of like a headset that takes a level of immersion to the next level i think that is only gonna create uh that much more exciting connections with folks that you normally couldn't be physically with because of geographic distance or whatever it may be mm -hmm. and to do activities with them that you couldn't do in a, a physical environment like rock yep. climbing or something like that uh, and then what's really really cool is that at some point here these the AR and VR. I mean, it's going to merge. The same exact device will be able to toggle back before back and forth between one medium and the other. So, let's imagine walking down the street and there being like a, a pervasive like AR filter that is constantly augmenting everything around you, where you're going to be able to get metadata on people as you walk by them, or think about being able to like look at someone's shirt or look at a car, and there being some augmented filter that. Um, turns a simple like black shirt to suddenly there be a Gucci logo on there because everyone's wearing AR lenses. And so because of that, you, as the consumer of the, the black shirt, bought this Gucci NFT that cost, I don't know, like $5,000, but mm -hmm. is able to, you were able to show it off through 
this AR uh, lens that is pervasive because everyone's wearing AR glasses. I mean, it's, it sounds like science fiction, but like, this is this is going to happen. Um, yeah. So the, the more and more that the friction with regards to the hardware, the form factor, the price, and just some of the building blocks to make this happen at a level where it just looks amazing, that's going to be solved, you know, in the, within the next decade, decade, and people are going to be adopting AR, VR in, in masses. And yeah, we'll all be living in the quote unquote metaverse. It's like, it's, yeah. it, it is coming. Yeah, that, no, that's a, that's a really interesting perspective. And the advertiser in me, my eyes lit up when you mentioned, you know, that the possibility, if you're walking by somebody, you could turn on a filter and see, you know, who's the brand, what's the price point, And, Maybe that can take you directly to a link to actually buy. Like that's that's super interesting. Like, totally. like what can be unlocked as a <laughs> as an advertiser. So totally yeah. gonna happen. Totally gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. You know, the last thing we wanted to touch on here, um, just switching gears, is um, surveillance. The Black Professional Social Network that you were the founder of. You know, it's it's really great stuff. I I'll admit I should be more involved than I am. <laughs> I, I I joined when you guys first. I know you're going to give me some shit about that, but uh, um, <laughs> um, would love to hear your thoughts around what went into, I mean, obviously, I think the two of us know why there's a need for that, but just just curious, you know, what went into the formation of it and would love for you to highlight, you know, some of the great things um, that are that are kind of happening as well with, with Valence. Yeah, right yeah. So essentially one day I was in my office about, I don't know, like, three or so years ago, I'm losing track of time, COVID does that. And I was reflecting on this dynamic that was at play where people were saying they wanted to hire more black professionals, potentially fund more black founders, but they're saying like, oh, I have no idea where to find them. There's, there's no black people out here. Or if they were trying to find folks, they would ask their one or two black friends, they even had one, but like, who do you know? I'm thinking that like all black people know one another, but we, we actually don't. And I was, just reflecting on if the, the the ways in which people are trying to tap into the, the power of this community were through that inefficient manner, or I even heard people saying they'd go on LinkedIn searching for black sounding names, like literally like true quote from a couple of recruiters. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're, we're kind of screwed. So I thought like, okay, instead of taking the approach around just going to someone saying, hey, you just try harder, just try harder, which some people were doing. I was like, let me just try to solve the issue, which for me was this third lack of transparency around the network. So I decided, why not just create this highly transparent, visualized database of black talent in a way where if you're looking for a profession, professional in any given industry, you can easily go to this destination and find them. And then I wanted to do it in a way where I was celebrating the community and, um, and, and positioning them in a way that was super aspirational. And part of that was through the narrative of superheroes, where for me, I wanted to take leaders of all different types across different industries and photograph them almost as a literal superheroes was this amazing photographer that I found and then have their narratives told through a couple minute video. And that would be super valuable, not only to folks that are not in the community, but also be very inspiring to members of the black community, especially the youth to potentially look at someone that looks like them and realize that, yeah, I could be a Robert Smith or a Peggy Alford or um, you know, all these amazing people out here doing um, exceptional uh, things. So I was building out this website, it wasn't supposed to be a company. I got people telling me like, oh my God, this should be a business. And then I got other VCs saying like, oh, I wanna fund your website. And I'm like, well, I'm a VC, I can probably fund my own website if I want to. And then I talked about it with my, my partners because I had no idea I was thinking about and building this website on the side. 
and then we decided to incubate it. And you know, we did with uh, a decent chunk of initial capital, uh, recruited a team to help really kind of build it out full time that I was helping lead while doing my day job as a VC. Hard balancing two jobs at once and yeah. say that, like being a VC, being a founder, and then I also have two boys, young boys, one's now six and one now four. Like it just, I don't recommend it for many folks, like taking all that work. <laughs> but for me, it was really more of a, um, a calling and a mission that I, I, I couldn't deny because I saw the way in which if this vehicle were to exist, the impact it could have on the community and the ability to at least have one vehicle trying to attack the, the wealth gap issue that we're seeing in this country and just the empowerment of black professionals. So long story short, launched it, got some um, solid initial traction and feedback. Uh, when we launched, I think we had like almost immediately 5,000 uh, members registered register to be on the site. I recruited a CEO full time to come on a few months later. And then his first formal day on the job was George was when George Floyd was murdered, which was just wow. like, yeah. So they, and, and I'd say pre George Floyd, there were a lot of people that liked what we were building with valence, but I'd say a majority of people still didn't really get it. Didn't know why there were, this website needed to exist. Uh, I'd bring it up maybe in passing with some folks and there's a gloss over and be like, okay, cool, whatever, your, your random black website. But the post George Floyd, people like, oh my God, like, wow, like, what are you working on? Like, oh, that, that's important. That's really important now. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's almost like, I feel like that point was it like. It takes a tragic event for, uh, you know, eyes to be open. Yeah. Yeah. So long story short, we quickly raised the Series A round of financing, uh, post that from GGV. Great investment group. Hans Tung was the board member, was early investor in companies like Wish and Peloton and Xiaomi and the top, I think, like top 10 Midas list investors. So he's been on the board helping us really think through how to take this thing to the next level, which it's evolved to right now being a platform that's not only a open community, but it's a, a member-based, uh, paid member-based um executive development um, program yep. where corporations can sponsor uh, any one of their um, you know, black professionals ranging anywhere from like five to 15 years of experience where they have the ability to be in a community of other professionals like themselves and have formal curriculum that helps them be better knowledgeable on different uh, facets of just being a great professional in general, whether it be communication skills, or whether it's mindset um, training from some of the best leaders around sort of mental performance coaching to um, a, a number of variety of other different sort of disciplines. And is this applicable and, across, uh, is this applicable across all functions, all industries or yeah? All industries, all functions. And so corporations are sponsoring folks through it, through to um, individuals paying for themselves. It's a 3,200 uh, annual membership fee to be a part of it. And the, you know, we've already had the first cohort go through of 150 people. They're just finishing up the first three months. And the feedback has just been amazing. Just folks saying this has changed their life with regards to how they think about themselves as a professional and executive and realizing what it takes to actually get to the next level or just feeling like they have more confidence uh, around just the fact that they do belong and they do have the ability to get to that next step. Because part of the dynamic of being a black professional in most environments is that there's very few people that look like you as you're trying to move up the, the ladder. And, um, and part of what happens is that um, that leads into increased churn because um, there's recent data we did with a study 
with uh, Russell Reynolds, where um, you know black professionals feel uh, more often than not they have to jump companies to move up the um, the corporate ladder because they don't feel a sense of um, empowerment or that the fact they're wanted or be promoted relative to their um, their non-black peers. So that's like one data point of many that shows that this psychological element and way of actually being supported as a professional moving through the ranks, there needs to be investment put towards how do we actually empower this this, this community in a way where they have the tools necessary to really uh, achieve success and ultimately just uh, have uh, at, at scale uh, a better ability to um, just drive wealth and drive overall growth within a segment where the wealth gap continues to widen. So that's kind of where we're at with the business and they're super excited about the mission that we have here and, and, and Guy and team leading the the charge in terms of just you know one, one, one platform of many and hopefully more that are out there trying to create um, you know black economic um, empowerment. That's great. I mean, um, I think a common issue that I that I hear about is that I mean nobody's doing it perfectly, but I um, from what I'm hearing, when you think about entry level type positions, companies are making strides there with improving diversity, you know, improving pipelines and bringing in people at kind of the lower levels. But the challenge is getting them promoted to middle management executive. And it, it, this is great what you're saying. It sounds like you guys are trying to address that. Is that the bonds program? Is that, is yes, that what it's yes, called? Yes, the yes, valence bonds, yeah. Valence bonds, okay, okay. Yeah, I just wanna make sure I had that right. Um, that's fantastic because that's that's what I've been hearing is kind of where the, the, the biggest gaps are. I'm sure there's other gaps, but that's kind of where <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing. Is there any other ways companies can get involved? I, I know you guys also have a job board where companies can post positions, tap into uh, talents for, for sourcing. Yeah, you know? I'd, I'd say the, big, the best thing someone can do right now if an organization wanna get involved is either Find individuals within your corp company that you would want to support and put through the program as a way of investing in their career and their development. And if for some reason you don't have any, because some don't, um, which it's an unfortunate case, you can also invest and support um, another professional that would benefit from just the sponsorship because you know, it, it is money, it, it does cost us money to actually put people through this program. So there's ways in which corporations can sponsor individuals um, at, at, at large to, um, you know, basically in, enrich their careers. And we've had uh, a number of companies that have um, have taken that approach towards helping with the initiative, like Silicon Valley Bank is a, you know, pretty significant sponsor and they sponsored um, a decent amount of, uh, of, of folks through the bonds initiative. And I think more and more, if you're seeing organizations trying to enrich a black professional through um, having them go through a program like ours or, or even anything else like that, it, it does have a meaningful impact. Well, Kobe, this is uh, this has been fantastic. We didn't even talk about your time at Upfront Ventures. So hopefully <laughs> <laughs> I, um, hopefully we can, uh, we can bring you back uh, sometime at some point, but um, yeah, really appreciate you coming on sharing the information and yeah, I think our audience is really gonna, really gonna like this, uh, this episode a lot. So. Awesome, my pleasure and I enjoyed it. Awesome, thanks Kobe. All right, take care. Thanks again for listening to Clear the Air with RPA. Please remember to leave a rating and a review and hit subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening from. If you have a show idea or guest you'd like to hear from, please don't hesitate to reach out to the team at rpa-pod at rpa.com. That's rpa-pod at rpa.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday with another new episode.